Welcome to all our listeners. I'm Christopher de Blague, and I'm talking to Eric de Blague about Guarded Words, writing from prison, England, France, and Russia. Eric de Blague was born in 1931 in France. He grew up mostly in England, and he had a university career that took him to the United States and Canada. He worked as a journalist in Montreal. Uh, He had a brief period uh, as a merchant banker. And returning to the UK, he went into the city where he became a specialist in a stockbroking firm or several stockbroking firms with a particular interest in the publishing industry. And it is in those fields that his previous books appeared. Now, I'm a first degree relation of Eric de Blague, and I have known him since I was born. And ever since I have a recollection of him, it is of someone who had his nose in a book, generally quite an old book. And very often he would come home clutching a brown package that would um, disgorge a beautiful object of great antiquity that I was allowed to handle, but only very, very carefully. For about the last 15 years, whenever I've spoken to Eric, he has been involved in going to the British Library or going to the London Library or going to Paris or going on various other pilgrimages around the place to see a series of writers whose unifying factor is that they spent time behind bars. And I'm delighted that this great endeavour that has taken such a long time and so much industry and so much application has now produced a book. And if I were a reviewer, and again, being a first degree relation, that that um, privilege will not fall to me. I would say that Guarded Words is an exploration of what it is to write from within incarceration, from within prisons. It is more than that, though. It is a, a social history that takes us for uh, some 500 years, starting in, in the year 1500, through the prison systems of England, France, and the Soviet Union. And with all the social histories that that entails, the ideas towards incarceration, the different conditions that obtained, some prisons being really not like prisons at all, other prisons going as far as the gulag in their intensity and their horror. But I think above all of guarded words as a very profound meditation on the effects of incarceration on the human spirit. I would like to start by asking you why you landed on this idea of prison as a spur to writing and how that very long-standing interest that you have in books found expression within this self-imposed parameter, the parameter of imprisonment? Well, the starting point was an article which I read in Isaac Disraeli's Curiosities of Literature, the copy I have dates from 1835 or thereabouts, where he suggested that rather to one's surprise, imprisonment could be a stimulus and a spur and an ideal setting for literary creativity. And I saw that and I wondered, well, how on earth? And that was the start of this investigation. One thing 
I did discover fairly quickly was that the quantities of writers with a prison story are huge. And I needed to limit the coverage. And this was done geographically, England, France, and eventually Russia. It was done in terms of the calendar starting in 1500 and going up to the present day. I could have started earlier. I could have found St. Paul as a candidate. Cervantes was certainly a possibility. And Boethius uh, was a strong candidate. But I wanted to limit it to something that was manageable. And I also wanted to avoid prison memoirs. That is to say, prisoners released from jail writing about that horrid experiences. I thought it would be better to try to be as up-to-date, really, with the, their experiences by concentrating on writings that originated in prison and were not uh, the recollections after release from prison. I think that idea of immediacy that we find in your book uh, springs from that decision But of course, there's a great range of writing that you deal with. Some of the books could have been written anywhere in that they do not refer directly to what's happening to the author. I think John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress perhaps falls into that category. Others are specifically means of getting through incarceration. There is also an extraordinary range of conditions. Prison life really isn't the same for everyone. It's, it's, it's very, very different. In your section on England, I was very intrigued to find that there was something called the rules, which seems to be a kind of incarceration without actually being incarcerated, and also the importance of imprisonment for debt in England, which seems to have accounted for a very large proportion of the prison population. That's one of the surprising statistics is the fact that indebted prisoners, people under constraint for debt, numbered in the 18th century about half of the population that was constrained. And the same applies in France with the Lettre de Cachet, which we may discuss a little later on. Both people under a Lettre de Cachet and individuals confined to prison for debt, were there not because they were breaking a law, but because they were put there by their creditors or their families, anxious not to have them tarnish the honor of the family, which is quite a wide definition. Looking at the indebted in this country, there was a certain specialization in the prisons, which accommodated the indebted as well as the felons. The indebted were there, therefore, under the thumb of the creditor, who also had to supply some funds to pay for the indebted day-to-day expenditure. Not that these funds were of any considerable character. But the idea was 
that um, in the course of their incarceration, they would somehow make the money or find the money in order to pay back their debt. Was that it? Yes. It's a rather bizarre way of doing it. If you want to get your money back, you shove the person who is going to supply your needs in jail. It's perverse. It is true that in some cases, a prisoner was in a position to work from prison and earn money from his activities as a prisoner, some of which might go towards paying off the creditor. And that was a case of William Coombe. Well, I, I'm hoping you're going to tell us about William Coombe because you have a great variety of debtors. They range from Theodore King of Corsica all the way to someone like William Coombe. And for those who are unfamiliar with William Coombe, he was the author of The Tours of Dr. Syntax, perhaps better known for the cartoons done thereof by Rowlandson. So do tell us a little bit about William Coombe because he had a career in jail, didn't he? Indeed. He spent much of his life in King's Bench Prison. His background was a curious one. His father made money as a steel man, and he was able to send his son to Eton. This was an experience that William Coombe found hugely appealing, and it conditioned his future life. But if you're a pupil at Eton in those days, you certainly didn't lay claim to being in any way connected with business or with industry. So he spent his life presenting the picture of a freewheeling aristocratic figure. And this got him into trouble because he became profligate and then he went to jail. Indeed. And once in jail... He managed to earn some money, but it was essential that his place of confinement should not be known by anybody. So he never revealed his address, which was King's Bench Prison. And for future biographers who work on his life to have to cope with the fact that he remained anonymous over most of the time, is a challenge which is quite hard. Would you say that he had a flourishing career in jail? Would you say that jail, in some ways, helped his career or was a hindrance? Because he was able to maintain connections outside in order to get his books published and disseminated. Yes, there was freedom of communication within and outside jail in his experience. That is certainly true. He had this weakness, financial weakness, which meant that whenever he was free, so to speak, he was almost bound to be spending more than he could earn. And that is after he'd worked his way through a significant inheritance at the early stage of his life. Debt is, the, is, is therefore a major theme in English incarceration. Another is religion. And certainly the, the conditions under which John Bunyan was incarcerated were, were very different. Tell us about John Bunyan and the, the genesis of Pilgrim's Progress in Bedford County Jail. Well, Bunyan started off as a very poor tinker, as we know, living a short distance away out of Bedford. And he spent three years in the parliamentary army as a young man. 
and then re-emerging, he took up again the tinker's trade, but he also had a religious experience, which meant that increasingly his mind was centered on religious considerations, leading to a great desire to preach. And if you preached, you also had to get a license for preaching. So his repeated jail terms centered on his failure to, or his unwillingness to, secure licenses for preaching. He trained himself rigorously in physical terms to experience maximum discomfort day in, day out. And this, in a way, fitted him for jail terms in jails where there might not have been any heating whatsoever. Occasionally, he found himself in a jail with a, a fireplace, at which point some heating would be possible. But he rigorously subjected himself to very harsh conditions, not such that he was incapable of writing. And he spent much from the word go, he spent time writing. Uh, this was something that he was able to do. And he, uh, this was initially in verse rather than prose. And his writings also achieved the unusual characteristic of being published. And this was partly because he was in touch with printers having the same nonconformist views that he held, who themselves took up the potentially uh, dangerous, politically dangerous task of printing publications that might differ from the received opinions of the authorities. I suppose with respect to um, John Bunyan, it might be argued that incarceration was a strange boon because if he was a preacher and he had an audience, then he would have been busy with other things. Whereas incarceration gave him perhaps this opportunity to write one of the great books of religious experience. And I wonder if within guarded words, because we are necessarily talking about the literate and in, in most cases, the hyper-literate, we're having a, a very special view of what it means and the importance of literacy to the general well-being of someone. Literacy obviously being a minority pursuit. And in your English section, you, meant, you mentioned something called the benefit of clergy, in which it was possible, if I'm not mischaracterizing things, that at your trial, you could avoid the harshest punishments and particularly execution simply by reciting or, or reading from a book of Psalms or from the Bible in order to prove your literacy. So that idea of literacy as being not only useful and something that could be productive, but also potentially something that could save your life is kind of embedded in, in your story. Yes, the, the ability to cite the Psalm and escape punishment relates to a crime. It was a penal let out 
it wasn't something that applied to indebted prisoners. So that was one other consideration in Bunyan's case, was that at various stages, he actually found himself in an environment where religious tolerance was remarkably present. And that is, that is Cromwell's period of tolerance, which facilitated a, his writings and, um, and printings before the period of intolerance uh, was reestablished. In your section on, on Thomas More, we have a discussion of, of when he was able to receive pen and paper and when he had to use charcoal pencils in order to write. And tolerance, of course, fits more widely into the story of monarchical power and the extent to which it was exploited and used. We have one, one monarch who, who appears in your book, which, uh, of course, is, is Charles I. We also have the royal prison. We have the Tower of London, which I was fascinated to find at some stages operated almost as a kind of unofficial or private university where some great thinkers were doing some of their best work. So we have, we have Walter Raleigh's History of the World, um, which is very, very long, but is also unfinished. It starts at creation and goes on to the Second Punic War, but I think it's 1,500 pages long and shows what you describe as, as extraordinary erudition. And we have um, Isaac Newton's apartment when he was a warden of the Mint, so he was doing some of his best work there. So the Tower has a kind of, um, has a very interesting position in your story. Well, the Tower, you're absolutely right, is a major presence throughout English history and functioned in all sorts of ways as a palace, as a prison, as a government centre, and it also has quite a lot of sort of ramifications. The idea of a prisoner in Nectar for religious reasons under the Elizabethan period, you could be guaranteed a place in the tower if you were a priest and you were caught preaching outside in the country. And one rather surprising aspect was that if you were incarcerated for religious reasons, you would also have a keeper who was there to monitor any statements you do that the prisoner might make that would be regarded as treasonous and so on. And the awkwardness was that the keeper quite often would be converted to Catholicism by the prisoner. And there's one splendid example of this taken to extreme lengths, where the lieutenant governor of the Tower had a daughter who fell in love with the prisoner, converted to Catholicism, and then found herself in another prison, communicating with the Tower prisoners. This was an awkward experience for the Lieutenant Governor, but he didn't actually lose his job. Moving on to France, this 
political fall from fortune is seen very much more dramatically and very much more widely with the French Revolution. And the French Revolution brings forth, happily for you, some of the most memorable characters in your book. But first, before we get to the French Revolution, I want you to explain the device that we mentioned briefly earlier, the Lettre de Cachet, which seemed to me to allow, could you describe it as a kind of restraining order that private individuals could apply for and was used and abused to an extraordinary extent? Well, that is absolutely true. It has its origins really in medieval thinking, where the king was the father of the population and his subjects would come to him and solicit this, that, or the other. He would then authorize whatever was required in a royal writ. And this didn't take into its stride any legal considerations. It was outside the law. And the family member, eager to protect the honor of the family, would make an application to the king or subsequently to his representative saying, I'd like to have the right to put so-and-so in prison or in detention in a place of my choice for a period of my choice. And this was freely used. Um, Mirabeau had a very forceful father who used the lettre de cachet in respect of the son, Mirabeau, who was a tearaway, ten times. And uh, he also applied the same restrictions on other members of his family, including his wife. So this was an instance of, as you say, the abuse of a right. One thing that the revolutionary authorities did quite early on was to abolish the lettre de cachet. So that, that would seem to be a, a positive effect of the French Revolution. The more ambiguous effects of the French Revolution are felt very much in your section on France. And we are able to follow between the lines and sometimes on the page itself, the struggle between the different factions within the Jacobin camp and mm. the eventual triumph, albeit short-lived, of the Robespierre faction. The victims of Robespierre's terror include Madame Roland. Well, Madame Roland is a major, major figure in the French Revolution. And she, I suppose, is either the most important or the second most important victim outside of the royal family of Robespierre's uh, tyranny. But she was a leading Girondist. And this was a group different from Robespierre's Jacobins. And when it came to the execution of the king and his family, the Girondins were not regicides. She was disposed of by Robespierre as part of the clear out of the Girondins, who were potential opponents of him in his regime. So 
The thing that I found particularly appealing about Madame Roland, she wrote memoirs in the rather brief period of time that she was incarcerated in Paris. Before being executed, of course. Before being executed. And she covered her own personal life as well as her political experiences. Political experiences are to some extent a corrective to uh, views that, uh, that the Jacobins had. But her personal experiences, and here was a woman in the 18th century France speaking with huge candor about personal experiences such as she had a, an encounter with a, an excitable young employee of her father who was a silversmith and she explains exactly what had happened and how she'd escaped. She tells us of uh, puberty. She tells us of the succession of candidates her father produced as possible suitable husbands and the hilarious descriptions of the letters she wrote for him to send, refusing the uh, offer of marriage. And there's one period when she went with a, an aunt who had some slight aristocratic leverage with her mother and the aunt to Versailles. And this was shortly after Louis XVI's accession to the throne. She was 20 and he was 20 or thereabouts. And she observed the throne in operation, so to speak, and came to a very swift conclusion that her Republican sentiments were thoroughly justified and she preferred seeing the sculptures in the park uh, to the courtiers in Versailles. And all of this sparkling French narrative, comparable in many ways to uh, Madame de Sévigné's glorious prose. She's a very considerable figure, and she died very bravely. The scene that you describe of her execution is one of bravery and also of selflessness and consideration to her fellow prisoners and others who were to be executed. There is a strong strain of, of tragedy in this French section of yours because so many of your characters do end up meeting the guillotine. And again, one is reminded of the great variety of people who crowd your pages. We have Antoine Lavoisier, who has a claim to be the discoverer of oxygen. We have poets such as André Chénier and uh, Anne Roucher. It's a great snapshot of French literate society and this great collision with the revolution. I think I'd like to hear a little bit more about Jean-Antoine Roucher. There is a strong epistolary element to his incarceration, a sense of um, someone who is trying to keep his own spirits up and someone to, who is trying to keep up the spirits of his family. And you have a sense of the waxing and waning of their morale as the revolution takes its course and leads Roucher inexorably to his own execution. 
Husha is, a, as you say, a tragic figure. He's also, in literary terms, a tragic figure because he spent 13 years writing a massive work on the seasons. It was a work of great erudition, which got periodically glimpsed at in readings he made during the course of its, uh, of its creation, readings organized by women who had salons and who were very keen to have somebody come and deliver a speech or a talk to entertain her guests. And when the book eventually matured and was duly published at considerable expense to him, it flopped and it was a literary failure which plagued him for the rest of his life. And in the process of doing this, he managed to arouse the wrath of a severe critic who was offended because Hushé displayed great affection for Rousseau, who had nothing but contempt for the Académie, which this critic had recently joined. When he went into jail, he decided to continue the instruction he was giving to his 17-year-old daughter. And a lot of the letters that he wrote from jail to his family were tasks that he gave his daughter. He was in process of writing, once again, another version of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, a translation which he'd already done once before. Fairly arid stuff for a girl to be confronted with. But during (laughs) his correspondence, he received help from his family. He received food and writing materials and herbal supports and things that he loved to pursue. And he was also uh, able to receive, I think, um, his son came to stay with him when he was in jail. And I think that's a surprising factor that recurs in the book is the extent to which the walls are occasionally extremely penetrable. Uh, you can sometimes, yes. if you're lucky or if you're in the right place at the right time, or it, it depends on the, the character of the governor himself, you may be able not only to receive pen and paper, but also to have members of your family to stay. Yes, you're absolutely right. Having the ability to have his young son, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, to come and stay was a great comfort to him. And indeed, the letters that he exchanged with his family, he saw as being in part of benefit to the son as a lesson in lots of moral virtues as well as uh, academic accomplishments. Eric, if, if one were to ask you which of these, we'll get on to Russia in the moment, because I don't think Russia will feature in the answer to this question. But which of the prisons would you regard as the most bearable in the ones that you wrote about? Well, they varied in severity during time. The Ritz-Carlton prison was the Luxembourg and I make reference to the Luxembourg that none of my candidates spent too much time there. But there, there was a curious uh, 
situation. The Jacobins would be tender-hearted when it came to women who were expecting. So if you're a woman and you wanted to have a high chance of not being executed, you sought to be in a family way. And this aroused the wrath of the governor of Luxembourg, and he collected all these titled women, distinguished women, and said, you realize that you're giving this Luxembourg Palace a very bad name. <laughs> you're making it into a upmarket brothel. And we and our staff are pimps. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned the uh, Ritz-Carlton. For, for many nowadays, the name Ritz-Carlton brings to mind the incarceration of the entire Saudi ruling class um, <laughs> yes, two or three years ago at the, at the, at the hands of their unappeasable prince, Mohammed bin Salman. So I think the, the, the Ritz-Carlton reference is very apposite. But to, to actually yeah. answer your earlier question seriously, I think from different prisoners' point of view, the Saint-Lazare was the cleanest, safest prison for a long time. It was also uh, the one that subsequently sank into extreme severity as the terror gathered base. So the prison conditions, A, didn't stay unchanged from month to month, and B, were also influenced by the quality and character of the imprisoned. And this made for uh, difficulties in Saint-Pélagie, which was where Madame Roland spent most of her time, and uh, the variety of experiences throughout the three countries of prisons is considerable. That probably leads us on to your third country, Russia under the Soviet Union. And I would like to speak about Lev Mushenko and Svetlana Ivanova, who fell in love before Lev was, uh, was imprisoned and sent to the Gulag. And over many years, kept their love alive by writing letters to each other which form a really remarkable correspondence. Absolutely. They first met Lev and Sveta at university in 1935. They eventually married uh, 20 years later, 1955. So as an instance of fidelity to original enthusiasms. You can't improve on that. And in the, in the intervening 20 years, Lev spent most of that time in jail. Absolutely. He started joining the army in the war with Germany in 1942. He was captured and at one stage was in a prison where he contributed to a translation of a periodical or something for prison material. So he escaped on several occasions. The last one, it was in 1945, 
and he ended up encountering the American forces. They handed him over to the Russians. And as far as the Russians are concerned, anybody who was a prisoner was automatically suspect. And in Lev's case, he was also somebody who had been seen to act as a translator, i.e. as an assistant to a German uh, officer. So he was doubly tarnished. So on being handed over as a free man to the Russians, he was immediately subject to a trial. And there he had been told that the formulaic solution to your problem, you admit guilt. And that's the end of it all. So he followed that advice and he admitted guilt and was given 10 years incarceration. He had disappeared from view when he was a prisoner of the Germans and he stayed invisible as far as his family were concerned and Sveta particularly uh, for another five years because he, he was transferred to his gulag in Petura. And it was only after a while that he managed to avoid the labors of a general prisoner and escape hardships that were bound to lead to his death when he was taken up by another prisoner who was in charge of the heating arrangements in the wood combine and recognized him as a useful candidate for help given his academic background. At that point, he wrote a letter to an aunt saying, I'm now in existence in this prison. Uh, any news of Sveta? Don't tell her that I wrote. So naturally, his inquiry went to Sveta and she promptly wrote saying, huzzah, huzzah, I've rediscovered you. And uh, this then followed its normal course of he was able in his prison to write letters and to organize himself in such a way that he could send these letters, usually through other prisoners who uh, had freedom of maneuver in and out of the prison. Uh, to her. And this is one of the distinguishing features of the gulags that my three candidates encounter. Some were able to write. Lev was obviously so. Some were unable to write. Solzhenitsyn being one, Irina Radushinskaya being another. And then the other uncertainty was transmission of those efforts at communication could vary from one prison to another. In the case of Solzhenitsyn, he was the star in a prison that was being constructed. So there's no pattern of existing contacts outside of the prison. In the case of Lev Mishenko, he was in a major industrial complex, which meant that 
flows of people came in and out of the prison to engage in work of one kind or another who were not prisoners. So that led to possible means of communication beyond the prison walls that Zelzhenitsyn didn't have. And Irina Radushinskaya also had the benefit of transmission because there were flows of prisoners coming in and out. And whenever they did that, then she was enabled to make some oblique contact with her husband, who was still in Kiev, and who was a source of great support to her in the transmission of the poems that she was able to write, and which eventually were published sometimes during her spell in prison uh, in America and in this country. It's a wonderful demonstration of, as I said at the beginning, the resilience of the human spirit, but also, I think, running through your book, the idea of writing as a means of virtual escape. It is a liberation within the four walls of the jail. In your section on convicted murderers, we have William Chester Minor, an American who killed someone in a fit of insanity in London and was sent to Broadmoor, where he became, I think, the most prolific and influential contributor to that extraordinary collegiate effort, the Oxford English Dictionary. We won't have time to talk about him or indeed about Pierre-François Lassenaire, an appalling self-publicist, very moderate poet, but someone who almost um, flagged his way to, um, to the guillotine in a blaze of publicity. There are many other characters of this kind, extraordinary people. I'd just like to end our conversation today with an allusion to your own efforts as a collector of books, because I think um, collecting books, and you mentioned as a student in Montreal, just how cheap it was to buy what we would now consider an extremely valuable book from the secondhand bookshops that you would frequent there. Um, this, this collection that you've built up and the, and the experience of collecting and the experience of touching uh, an object that has been written and read and perhaps annotated by people over the years, this extraordinary sense of transmission. You mention a story to do with the icon Basilike that Charles I wrote or perhaps didn't write, but is, is generally considered to have written as a justification for his reign before his execution. And you, when you were had a spell at Lambeth Palace as a volunteer, dusting and caring for the books in the library there, Lambeth Palace being the home of the libraries collected by various archbishops of Canterbury over the centuries, you came across a copy of the Icon Basilica, which had an extraordinary life of its own. The copy that I came across was of the collected works, including Icon Basilica, of Charles I, published well after his death in 1666. And the peculiar characteristic of this copy was that it had had a history that had taken it across the seas. It was in the 
possession of a trader whose ship was hijacked by pirates, and he and his possessions were taken to Portugal, where the uh, pirate ship was heading. And there, the book was handed over to the religious authorities in order to purify it from Protestant influences. And consistently throughout this copy, the references that cited King Charles as being a a divine extraction and the right of kings and so on were crossed out but not in such a way that it was, they became invisible, but they were unacceptable terms and unacceptable descriptions from a Catholic point of view. This particular copy found its way to Lambeth Palace. And one day in 1700, Pepys, who had also an edition of the collected works of Charles I asked to be able to come into the Lambeth Palace Library in order to compare his copy with the one that Lambeth Palace held. So there's a certain thrill in handling this book because one was in close proximity to another bibliophile named Samuel Pepys, who had also made use of this particular document. Well, knowing you as I do, um, that sounds like um, the closest thing to ecstasy. So I think we'll stop on that ecstatic note. It remains for me to thank you, Eric de Blake, for your fascinating book and for giving us uh, your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you.